Hi, this is Mary H.K. Choi, and you're listening to Hey Cool Job, a podcast about jobs. We are returning after hiatus with two guests who I'm super excited to talk to. They are Erica Cerullo and Claire Mazur, the co-founders of Of A Kind, a beautifully considered, thoughtfully edited online boutique featuring hundreds of emerging designers. It's a haven for unbridled enthusiasm. Erica and Claire also host a podcast called A Few Things and have just written a book called Work Wife. I'm in love with my Hi, Claire and Erica. Wow, that was such a beautiful introduction. You you also described our site so much better than we ever do. Oh my God, you would think nine years in we'd know what to say about it. We have no idea. You did a great job. Thank you. We might borrow pieces. (laughs) Have at it. No, I was. I had a lot of other things that like met the cutting room floor. I was just like, you know, everything's kind of like magic hour on their site. Like it's like really good, like good, like natural lighting. Oh wow. Um. What first things first. Congratulations on the book. Thank hey, thanks. you. I feel like it's like so full circle because we talked about it a few months ago in this very studio. Yes. Same spot. Yeah. When same I, chairs even. Same, same seats. Chairs. Oh my yeah. God, yeah. <laughs> same seats. Same seats. And and that was when I was doing your podcast and it's out now. So. I know. And I, I thought about you a lot in the final like stages of our book because you gave us a lot of good book publishing advice. Oh, that's so kind. Well, basically, Tons, it's like yeah. you you can't feel your face and it feels excruciating yeah. and then you're spat out at the other end of it, basically. That's right. um, so I'm going to do individual questions so that we can acclimate to y'all's voices. Oh, I like that. So Erica. Yes. I know that you are a voracious reader and you've worked in magazines. Has writing a book always been a dream of yours? And how is the reality holding up? Oh my gosh, great question. I think writing a book has always been a dream of mine, if, if even if I didn't recognize it as such, but maybe not a nonfiction book. Um, although like I, I'm not a serious fiction. I, I, it's not like I even dabble in creative fiction, so I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what fiction book I think I'm writing. Um, and, and you the, read a lot of fiction. I, I read yeah. a ton of fiction. Mm-hmm. I read a ton of fiction. Um, yeah, and it's been, b- putting a book out into the world, I think part of it, it's been really exciting actually experiencing people reading it, um, which is part of, I don't think I realized how thrilling that part of it would be, mm. um, which is stupid. Like, of <laughs> course, someone reading the book, is it going to be exciting part of writing the book? Um, no, it, that's not true. I mean, the schism of, like, your narrative, narrative self and yeah. your experiential self always blows me away. I'm like, whoa, like, I knew that only on paper. <laughs> totally. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. And so starting to get feedback from people who are like, I really connected with that. Or, you know, that section meant a lot to me. You're like, oh, right, people are reading these things and applying them to their lives or digesting them and, you know, spitting them back out in their own way. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's always kind of one of those things where you're like, oh no, right. It's out there. It's out there. (laughs) It's out there. Yay. Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. So actually, Claire, um, I follow you on IG and I follow both of you and the store. Um, Because your stories are like the most soothing like honest haul video. Wow. I'm always like really interested in nosy and like voyeuristic <laughs> about like what you're getting from your own site yes, and what yeah. you're into. Uh-huh. Um, I know that you advocate for a lot of designers, uh-huh. but obviously it's really different when it's you guys out there on the road yes. talking about yourselves mm-hmm. and the business behind the business. How has that been for you? Surprisingly good. Um, I... 
it's funny when we fundraised for the business, um, we were terrible at it. And we actually, and, and it was the same thing where we would have to get up in front of people and advocate for our business and why they should give us a lot of money and uh, to grow the business. And I developed uh, stage fright and got would like get really nervous about public speaking in a way that I never had before. And it was really surprising because I had like done a lot of public speaking and community theater as a kid. And I was like, why am I nervous about this? I was never nervous. And then Eric and I were just talking after one of our book events the other day. And I was like, man, I haven't had to take a beta blocker for an event in ages. Mm. Like, and it really surprised me. And I was like, wow, I, I enjoy public speaking again. This is so exciting. And I think the reason is that we are not that I'm not passionate about of a kind and I wasn't, but that, but fundraising for it is a very different type of um, sort of persona that you have to put on to, to pitch your business and to pitch investors. And it's obviously very much um, the standards are, have been set by a certain type of startup bro culture that is not comfortable for either of us. Um, and so getting up there and talking about what it means, getting up in front of a crowd and talking about what it means to, um, prioritize friendship in the workplace is something that like makes my heart burst and come so naturally and is really fun and um, exciting and and also just nice to know that 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 stage fright thing wasn't a thing that I'm stuck with for the rest of my adult life it, it's felt like this I think for both of us this nice moment where we're like wow we finally shook that thing yeah also like I think it helps that you guys won <laughs> I mean, no, I really, really relate to this yeah. experience of like going in front of like people who are acclimated to like people named Scott or Matt mm -hmm. in blue shirts or yeah. whatever. Alan and, like, and Jean. Exactly. Yeah. But like, exactly. <laughs> Lots of Alan's and Jean's. Yeah. And, you know, but you guys are kind of on the other side of something and yeah. talking about your experience mm -hmm. in that. And so, you know, just sidebar for exposition for people who may vaguely know about you guys but not exactly how do you describe of a kind and how do you describe the sort of like metrics by which people can gauge like what size this like mm. enterprise is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think the quickest way we say it and we were just saying we haven't figured out the best way but the quickest way we say it is we sell the pieces and tell the stories of emerging designers um, and we do that in home fashion beauty personal care well beauty and personal care are the same thing um, <laughs> we also are we sort of our motto is we give our, our greatest discoveries the audience they deserve mm. um, but it's hard because we sell things we have a podcast we have a newsletter we wrote a book and it feels really challenging to do a sort of like quick uh mouth a, a quick like elevator pitch <laughs> yeah elevator type. pitch yeah. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. of what it is it's kind of like a platform agnostic media experience with in-app purchases I love wow. it wow <laughs> yes so see I yeah. think you should just be answering all the questions about what our business is because yeah. you do just such a better no, job no it's, it's actually really cool like you guys really put this you know, store and story. No, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it is, it really does feel like, and I know you guys get this a lot, like, people are just talking to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that has always been our hope since the very beginning. And I mean, I think it started, you know, we started this out of our apartments. Like this was like the two of us and a couple of interns and we were writing all the customer service emails and we were signing them Claire and Erica because that's who was writing the customer service emails. And I think people responded really well to that from day one in a way that we did not anticipate at all. Um, I don't think we ever thought that our lives or us as people would be so core to what the business has become. In or the even way that our friendship. Or a friendship, yeah. exactly, exactly. And I think that has been a, a surprise. And once we started realizing 
that we could lean into it in ways that we were comfortable with. Um, it, it, it was exciting for us, I think. Yeah. Um, and this book is definitely one of those ways that we've been able to lean into that. Well, also to give a little bit of context. So 2010 is when you guys founded. And that was like, it is actually such a ballsy thing that we're talking like two, like one or two years after the subprime mortgage crisis. Yep. We're talking about like New York being very, very shaken in yep. like mm-hmm. Wall Street finance, like media. Yeah. Yeah. And then you did something that was so antithetical to the current of fast fashion, which mm. was so dominating. Yeah. And it was still it still felt so new. Yeah, yeah, it was driving everything. Everybody was buying Zara and H&M everything. You'd see the, a girl walk down the street with the same blue Zara skirt as the one like on the other block. Right. At that time it was, yeah, it was like a cobalt blue Zara skirt Pleated and skirt. then like a mustard card, yeah, call it yellow card again. Totally, absolutely. <laughs> and But the thing is, and you guys were like, what we're going to do is we're going to do really, really short run limited edition things which from artists that maybe we've never heard of so it's right. not even a thing where it's like limited edition Nike hyper strike yeah. thing right, right, right. you're just like we are creating this microcosm and it's going to have our fingerprints all over it and in many many ways I mean I have a retail background and it is the most pain in the ass thing that you can try to scale (laughs) which is exactly what everybody told us and like we didn't have a background in retail and that is the only reason we did it because we were so naive I mean we definitely anticipated fast fashion fatigue and I think that was part of that was part of the inspiration is like we were seeing it everywhere um and we we were those people that really loved discovering designers that nobody had heard of and when somebody asked us where we got a thing being like oh it's the small designer in you know, X small town, and here's the inspiration why. And we knew that that sort of person existed everywhere, right? Like, there's the people who really want to know about a band before they make it big and, like, love a band that nobody else has ever heard of or go to a restaurant before anyone else has been there. and Or buy a coffee bean that not yeah, people aren't exactly. buying yet. Yeah, <laughs> a single source one. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So we knew that that, that that existed in fashion and that we thought we could cultivate that in fashion and that the timing was right. We did not know enough about retail or retail economics to know just how painful it was going to be. <laughs> well, but I think the other thing to go back to what you were saying about, you know, this was not this was not long after the height of the recession. Mm-hmm. I think what that really taught us was just how much the industries were changing. Um, and I was working in magazines in 2008 um, and really, you know, saw a lot of magazines I loved fold um, and the editor publisher relationship at the ones that didn't change pretty dramatically. Um, and when I moved to New York in 2005, I had, you know, wanted to be an editor-in-chief of magazines someday. And in 2010, I was like, I don't know if I do anymore. Um, and so what did the future of content look like? Like, what was storytelling? What was all of that? And actually, there's something so wholly prescient about mm-hmm. what you're doing. And, you know, right now it's like everything is spawn con. Every single big business has an editorial wing in-house. Yes. Mm-hmm. And like because No all one of these, did in 2010. No one did. Yeah. And so I think that like I really want to kind of um, give you all some props. No, just recognize what a ballsy feat this was and how uphill it was. But also, I really like what you guys did because, you know, I've I've been aware of you this entire time. Like I'm like... I too like this Colina Strada bag that there's only four <laughs> of apparently, you know, like, and it was, you guys had a really, really good knack for the MSRP sweet spot mm. where mm. it wasn't cheap like fast mm-hmm. fashion, but it wasn't like the huge name brand things yeah. either. It was this really confusing thing that is now a lot more prevalent. Like mm-hmm. 
that black crane sweet yeah. spot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which everybody yeah. knows now, but yeah. back then was not the hundred ninety five dollar dress. Well, it's yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I've always felt like part of our problem is that for the fast fashion shopper the price point is too high and that for the luxury shopper, the price isn't high enough to sort of validate it for them. Um, and I do think you're right that that has changed a lot. But in the beginning, we did, we always used to say, it's like for someone who's graduating, not that I consider J. Crew fast fashion, but we someone who's graduating from J. Crew was the person we were always sort of trying to target. Um, and that price point really didn't exist. It's like, even the what, what was the thing at, at Bergdorf 5F the like mm, yeah, like yeah. that had even like shut down shortly after yeah, yeah. after we started and all of, of those things felt diluted anyway yeah, where yeah. it was just like sure you have like Saks and then you have this weird off fifth brand yeah you exactly. know in house brand yeah versus this where I'm like oh I really feel as though what's happening here is that it's just not marked up for brand recognition right, just right. yet which is something that happens a lot now especially with technology yeah mm-hmm. yeah but that like off-brand thing, that thing you'd never heard of, just used to feel different back then. So I want to commend you guys for successfully overhauling all of retail. (laughs) Great. Um, Thank you so much. So just to give a little recap, you guys sold your business in 2015 to Bed Bath & Beyond. Mm -hmm. Yes. We didn't see it coming either. (laughs) But so that's what I mean by you won. (laughs) Like you absolutely won. That is how you win. Are you wealthy now? <laughs> Extraordinarily. I mean, see, this is actually yeah. what I want to hear. Yeah, no, 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 no. This no. is important We for aren't me. at we all. Aren't. Um, um, we have a lot more money than we used to have. Yes. Um, um, we did not pay ourselves even close to, like, market rate when we were, you know, running our own company. And we only ever raised, before we sold to Bed Bath & Beyond, we only ever raised $500,000. Um, and that was all friends and family with one institutional investor. That is... You, you talk for five about, years. You talk yeah. about this in the book, and actually I was really blown away and really grateful for the transparency that you have in the in the book about mm-hmm. the sort of like finances of this. Yeah. Because $500,000 is not a lot of money. It's not a lot of money. At all. Well, and it, it's funny because we were for so long so scrappy. I mean, we got so much stuff for free. Like Erica said, we didn't pay ourselves for so long, and we would just hustle, hustle, hustle to, to not spend too much money. And I think the biggest difference now being on this side of the Bed Bath & Beyond sale is feeling like we got so burnt out on doing that and we didn't have it in us to sort of like operate that way anymore to have to ask for everything for free and now we don't have to ask for everything for free. Well that's awesome too but the thing I really love about that and I'm such a you know perennial underdog is that you guys have such a granular understanding about the mechanisms that actually have to be in place in order to produce a thing. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. there's so many times when you work in corporations where you're like, hey, guy, you've literally never delivered a deliverable, have you? <laughs> yeah. Because what your, your questions betray such a lack yes. of knowledge Absolutely. around deadline, yeah. around anything. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know what my favorite thing about your book is? Hmm. I mean, just from a you knowing you guys standpoint, I love a lot of the things inside the book. But I think it's so baller that you can buy the book in the paper goods section of your site. <laughs> like that made me, that pleased me Good. infinitely. I was like, these guys are so effing smart. <laughs> like just keep like get well, that royalty. Well, we're not going to write a book yeah. and not be able no, to sell it. I know, I mean, but I was, yeah. like, I was like, dang. I was like looking at that. I was like, they're getting like the MSRP. And the royalty. <laughs> I was just like looking. I was like, this is like. 
this is like a Venn diagram of so many glorious things. So, Mary, I'm glad you appreciate it because it was not easy. Because <laughs> it was it's, not as easy as you would think it would I be. Was, I, because I you really wanted to bet. count towards bestseller list, so then you have to buy it from the right people. And it's like, yeah, a whole you're like, thing. how do you do with the, the audit? It's yep, like a whole, yep. that I saw that and I actually had such galaxy brain. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, these girls are like masterminds. I was like, I was really impressed by that. So, Thank um, you. But yeah. what I was going to say too about, you know, raising $500,000 and selling to Bed Bath and Beyond. The fact that we had only raised that much made that a more viable thing and made an acquisition more viable in general because we weren't a business that had raised $20 million or $100 million or $500 million because mm-hmm. the potential of people, you know, your, valuation, your valuation and all of that shifts dramatically when you've raised that amount of money and what investors expect back and who's willing to like, okay, a deal also changes dramatically. Yeah. And so we could make the decision between the two of us if this was right for us. We didn't have a board to ask. We yeah. did, yeah, we were not dealing with a whole posse of people who were like, like, well, let's just wait and see if Amazon comes calling or whatever it is. Um, and so we had the autonomy to, yeah. to drive that. And I mean, yeah, that's the thing about like rain making unicorn businesses. You have yeah. to deliver unicorns. Yeah, yes. which is really hard. Yeah, also not ever done, not really. Yet. But well, one day, I'm sure, right? <laughs> I know. That's but what <laughs> they keep telling us, yeah. I think this is where I cough while saying Theranos. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but to answer your question about whether or not we're extraordinarily wealthy, we are not, but we did... I think the thing that I'm glad that we did when we sold the business after like getting a deal price that felt fair and that we were excited about was that we had to negotiate our contracts. And I think we did a better job in that moment than we had done sort of asking for money up until then. And it was because we had recently heard the advice mm-hmm. from Cindy Gallup that was when it comes to negotiations, you just, the the right answer is always the biggest number you can say out loud without laughing. And we knew what that number was and we asked for that and we got pretty close to it. And 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 of course now five years later, or no, not five years, almost four, four years yeah. later, that number would be bigger. But like, I'm glad we did that. And I don't think we would have done that if we hadn't heard that advice. I'm so glad that you said that out loud, not only so I could experience chills, but that <laughs> the people the, listening can It's yeah. the best, it is the single best financial advice, money advice I've ever heard. Well, because we're in this women's group with Cindy and and it's a list host and people write in all of the time with a very reasonable question of like I've got this consulting gig and what should I rate to name a price and what should my rate be or I'm going to go do this speaking gig and I don't know how much to to quote them and it's always so hard to know the answer to that so then the answer is the biggest number you can say out loud without laughing that's the answer so this is actually what I love about your book I don't know what the expectation was but there was a little bit of me where I was just like man I had like imposter syndrome reading the book where I was just like, well, I'm not in a partnership and I'm not like an entrepreneur. So, I mean, is this for me? I think of you as an entrepreneur. Well, thank you. That's really kind. (laughs) But so I I read this a little bit with this like weird projection. And on one hand, I was really pleasantly surprised by like, also, I don't know why I was surprised. I think it was just like some weird stigma of what a business book is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's not gimmicky. It's not hacking something for me. It's not like we don't know how to hack anything. Yeah. We couldn't write that book. <laughs> no, I know, but, it, but, <laughs> but I know what you so mean. So many that's what, people yeah, write that course. book without knowing how to optimize <laughs> the thing that they're telling you in seven worlds yeah. will like change your life. And so I read it. It reads beautifully. It's a wonderful narrative. It's rigorously researched. Oh, thank you. It is just a pleasant reading experience, but also so informative and kind of like unflinching about the aspects of owning a business with a friend. So, you know, 
The logline is the power of female friendship to drive successful businesses. What was the first inkling where you're like, okay, this is actually our hook. This is what this book is about. We've been having conversations about like a book in general for far too long, like for like way before it ever made any bit of sense for us to write a book. And, and and originally people had been like, well, you should write a book about Avakai. And we're like, absolutely not. That's not, there's not a big enough audience for that or it just doesn't make sense or it's not a book we want to write. Like, um, a, like a coffee table book or something? I, or like, just like everybody wanted the next girl boss. Yeah. Oh, I have questions about that later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then from there, there were people who were like really into our 10 Things newsletter and our podcast and were like, you should write a book that's basically how to be a grown-ass woman. Um, and we're like, that's also not really a book. We, and it's just, there's no one way. There's no yeah. one way. Um, and um, we had another meeting finally where someone was like, oh, you should write a book about your partnership. And we were like, hey, wait. Let's like let's let's sit on this one for a while. Yeah. That's interesting. Like that is something yeah. that we are genuinely so proud of. And when we think about our career, that is the thing that we are perhaps the most proud of. Um, and then she sort of burst the bubble by saying, and of course it'd be called two of a kind. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So we, we were like, well, we love the idea, <laughs> but we're gonna go a different route. Yeah, we're gonna workshop the title a no, little bit more. Wow, two of a kind. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that would be if you had like a sitcom, like a twenty-two well, minute. Well, I think it actually CBS was family. a Mary Kate and Ashley video, like home video. Yeah, wow. straight to straight, straight to, to VHS. They, made, they, they did make a lot of money. Though, I will say. Um, <laughs> yeah, I really love what you're saying though, because I think that's kind of a perfect framing for this. It's like a wonderful thing about books written by women actually I don't want to say women as a totality but just women that I know and like fuck with it's like you're like yeah we didn't want to do something prescriptive or didactic I was Mm -hmm. like thank god yeah like there are enough nonfiction books out there that just just do that all over my face we also don't think we have the answers we think that we have done something that has worked for us um, and wanted to hear about other people's experiences and wanted to interview other people about how they'd figured this thing out because as much as you know as much time as we have spent talking about our relationship and how it works, and as much time we, as we've spent in you know our management coach's office talking about how it works, we haven't talked to that many people about the inner workings of their relationship in the way that we got to for the book. Um, and so we sat down with 14 other duos and trios of women and asked the questions about how do you deal with money? How do you hire, fire, and manage? What is it like when you fight? How did you learn to do that? Um, what are the things that are hard to talk about? What are the things that are easy to talk about? And isn't it weird when you're like laying it out? Like, isn't it kind of bananas that you wrote this book and that there was such a dearth of information in the marketplace? <laughs> yeah. It's like you re- really met a need that yeah. when you say out loud, it's like, why don't I hear more stories about right. like partnerships and like co-founders and founders? And- well, the other funny thing that came up while we were writing it, this like I realization surface that every big comp- every big and small company beats this drum about collaboration and partnership and transparency teamwork, and teamwork yeah. right 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 and open office spaces right. and, yeah. and but nobody actually privileges it in the way that they do business like you would never give somebody a performance re- review as part of a duo even if they work really closely together right like you would never um, promote people as part of a partnership and and at the end of the day as much as people want to talk about these ideas of like collaboration and all of that it's not rewarded. They just want it to happen. And, and it's not privileged. And certainly it's glossed over where mm-hmm. it's just like team and then your eyes yeah. are just kind of like white. It's yeah. like, yeah, but teams are multiple people with like yeah. individual like perspectives yeah. and like expertise and like modalities. Um, so I would describe work wife as a manual for anyone advocating for themselves in any environment in which you would like to make any money. <laughs> 
because that's Love the thing that. like work work wife you know I did have that thing of like okay is this book for me because I'm yeah, not part of right, this right, right. and I was just like oh this is actually just about how to be like a person in a financial situation like yeah. foraying into business land mm-hmm. yeah it's kind yeah, of yeah. for like it's it's basically for any small business owner any any like one gather, getting a 1099 like anyone who has to advocate for themselves at all anyone Adults. who wants to be a human in a professional like yeah. setting yeah without just like flaming or just being really confused 100%. about whatever what everyone else is doing what's going on so yeah. um and i do actually really want to say too that i love how you framed it very early in the book that biology is not a determinant of gender mm-hmm. and that work wife and female in the title is not this exclusionary taxonomical bracket mm-hmm. it's just like not dudes, not Allens and Jeans. <laughs> yeah, that's like basically what this actually thing <laughs> yeah, that's is. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I loved something that you guys talked about about your start time, mm-hmm. where you're like, "Oh, we can start our work day when we need to." Mm-hmm. And I love that that was said out loud. But do you find that like there are these moments where you have to give your, either give yourself permission or deprogram some weird business expectation that you had in your head when you founded your own business and what were they? A hundred percent. All the time. Um, I mean, I think to go back to what the model of itself of the business is and you know how hard it is to scale something that is limited edition, I think for a really long time, we had created these rules in 2010 about what this business would be. Here's what the business would, here's what we would sell, here's how we would put it out there in the world, here's how we would promote it. And it took us an embarrassingly long time to realize that if we wanted to add other things on top of that or scrap parts of that original thing, we could because we made those rules up ourselves. And like if they weren't working for us anymore, then they shouldn't exist. And and that was like you know it was the the business was we release a limited edition fashion item one at a time in conjunction with a series of stories from an emerging designer in the United States and then we would like hem ourselves in so much to that specific thing and then finally it was like I think our audience really likes beauty products should we start carrying beauty products and then like lo and behold our audience bought a lot of beauty products and we're like why didn't we start doing that earlier just because it was against our, these rules that we had written for ourselves but I love the vulnerability and the admission of having to interrogate that because yeah. unless you know that peop- other people are doing that it kind of sometimes doesn't occur to you to also apply that framework to mm-hmm. what you're doing in your own life like yeah. you're like oh yeah I'm steering yeah and I think that that is an aspect of being a woman in the workplace that perhaps like you're not just like readily assuming yeah yeah, yeah. well and I also think it is really helpful as it was especially helpful in the earliest of days to have rules in place and to have a lot of framework around things and you know I like I you know live and die by rules I like I'm Erica very structured structure. I'm yeah. super structured and we would write a lot of content in like 2010 2011 we would be writing a lot of content on the site that didn't relate to the products we were releasing so that there was other content there so that you weren't just getting like this one piece or what two hits of content a week and I created rubrics that would be published on each day of the week I never fucking missed a post. <laughs> and it's because I knew that on Mondays, we posted this. On Tuesdays, we posted that. And if I hadn't had that specific structure, it would have been very easy in those days when we were like running around like chickens with our heads cut off to be like, you know what? That thing's not happening today. We're not going to make that happen. But because it was like ingrained that on Wednesdays we do this, it always happened. Mm. 
The other thing that we, and I don't, I don't know if we ever truly deprogrammed ourselves of this, but we got ushered into the whole fundraising uh, circus by virtue of being a business on the internet in 2010 that was based in New York, which at the time was launching like Foursquare and Rent the Runway and all of these businesses that were raising millions of dollars. And so it was just sort of assumed that in order to grow our business, we also had to raise millions of dollars. And I don't think, I, 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 as Erica said, we didn't and we shouldn't have been doing that. And we spent a lot of time doing it. And I think it probably wasn't until around like 2013 that we finally realized that venture capital wasn't for us. Um, and that, you know, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of other funding vehicles for small to medium sized businesses in the country right now, in this country right now. Um, but that was something that took us a long time and a lot of wasted time to finally shake and say, like, we don't have to do this. I love, I love that. Like I, and actually in the book, you guys explicitly talk about coming to this hard won conclusion of wanting of a kind to be mighty and not huge. Yeah. And that's like, that's such a huge thing that I really want everyone to realize is that like, you can give yourself permission not to be like the huge runaway success version of something. Mm -hmm. And in 2010, and or you know, and the subsequent years, like how challenging or distracting was it to see like a Sophia Amorosa from Nasia get like a trillion dollars oh or gosh. hugely distracting? Yeah. yeah, because it also at that point, and I think now still raising a big round is deemed a marker of success. People get congratulations for raising a round. A, I read something somewhere and I, I can't take credit for this, but someone was like, instead of saying congratulations, you should be saying good luck. Like, raising $50 million means you have to figure out how to get your company to a place where it makes sense for people to have given you $50 million, not the other way around. And that's challenging. And I think one of the things, you know, now that we are nine years past this moment, we learned is that as we were going through fundraising at various points, in 2010, we would go into meetings, people would be like, you should be the next guilt group. You should release, like, limited edition in all these categories and there'll be flash sales, blah, 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 blah. And then two years later, it was, you should be the next fab.com. You should be, and then two years after that, it was, you should be grown up nasty gal. Every two years, there was a new, like, shiny toy that everybody was pointing towards of, we could be the baby this. Mm -hmm. And if we would just restructure our business to follow in this this business's shadow, people would be interested in investing in us. And looking back now, we can see because of sort of where a lot of those businesses have shaken I out. Think all of them. What, what did you say? Fab, guilt, and nasty gal. Yeah. yeah. So none, um, none of those <laughs> happy endings. Um, then I'm really glad that we didn't take any of that guidance. How do you? How do you say no to that though? Because the thing is, I know you guys. You're both really strategic. You're yeah. smart. If someone plots the the course for you to be like this, 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 and this, I know you can see that and you yeah. can visualize it and you can envision it. How do you then turn to each other and your gut and go, this is not for us? Like, what's the math there? Well, I think you you sort of nailed it when you said gut. And I think at some point we just started listening to our gut. And your gut, you also can't betray your gut. And I think that's why we were bad at fundraising. Because even though we could get up there and say, here's how we're going to get to this amount of revenue – our our physical bodies <laughs> knew that we didn't actually believe that. And that's why we developed stage fright. Um, I think it just, we we deep down knew that it wasn't exciting to us and that it wasn't, it wasn't where we were going. I mean, I remember our last real stab at fundraising, we were planning on building out a marketplace. And I remember saying out loud to Erica, 
this doesn't excite me, but I do think it's the only way to grow the business. And I now look back and I'm like, why, even if I knew why would we was, have gone why down this we road, doing what that? on earth will we doing? I mean, I do think there are people who can get really excited about the pure experience of growing and scaling a business and making something big. And they don't necessarily care what that thing is. And we are not those people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have to feel excited about the, the thing that we are creating. Yeah, you guys aren't just like, let's make a conduit. It's more like we care about the thing that we are ferrying from X to Y. Exactly. Um, So you actually devote a lot of time in the book about unpacking uncomfortable conversations. Mm -hmm. Like not only do you guys share really candidly about the way you guys do it, um, but you talk to a lot of other people who talk about that as well. What is like the first big uncomfortable but crucial conversation that a person starting a business with a friend should have out the gate? I mean, I think it's probably about what the partnership looks like. And I'm not saying that should be the very first thing because the very first conversation should be around like, what is this thing that we're excited about building and just how excited are we? But I think the, the first uncomfortable conversation has to be like, who's in charge of what and what does the ownership breakdown look like and what is the you know what happens if we don't if we can't come to an agreement on something and you know how much are we each getting paid and i that was such a miserable time and Erica and i as we talk about in the book did not agree on it um yeah. in the beginning and which surprised me when i read that yeah. i was yeah. like whoa yeah well it just and it was i like i still look back and i'm like that was like such a miserable period it was awful but i'm glad we did it and i'm glad we got through it and um and we ultimately then changed what we came up with um, um, then, but I think knowing that we could get through it was an important test, even if we didn't look at it that way at the time. Well, and I think that people, especially in a two-person partnership, automatically want to default to the easiest answer, which is we we split things fifty-fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to interrogate that, and you have to think about what are people bringing to the table, what are people leaving behind to do this, what kind of uh, monetary compensation will people need? Is there someone who could take a lower paycheck? Um, and maybe get more equity now, and someone who needs the money, you know, to operate their day-to-day lives and should should have less equity as a result. There are just so many factors, and because people don't want to have the tough conversation, they say 50-50 so that they can move on. Yeah, right. And you, instead, you guys, it was a question of like, because I know that, um, Claire, you were leaving like an art career, mm-hmm. and you were leaving an editorial career, yeah. and that was in a different time space base in 2010 and so you were leaving different salaries so that was something that had to be contended with there was that there was like who was that was less yeah yeah yeah, it was less that yeah it was like I think I think it was a question of like who is bringing more money to the table and funding who was bringing more sort of like connections to the table that would be really valuable in the long run um who was bringing like sort of more experience in the space to the table there was there was a lot of things at play Yeah. yeah when you talk about that stuff now does it bother you guys at all I mean, I look back at it uncomfortably. Like, I'm not super psyched to talk yeah. about it, but it did feel important to share in the book. Yeah. No, for It was sure. a hard yeah. thing, but also it was also like a hard section to share in the book and yeah. hard to, like, get it right, basically, yeah. or hard to figure out how exactly we were going to talk about it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Did you have anything that you put in the book where you were like, oh, I think people who work for us might be surprised to read this? Probably that. There, yeah. were, In general, there was a lot where I was like, oh, right, it's funny that we're putting this in a book and we've never shared it. Well, and I think the conversations about our management style and how mm-hmm. we've thought about that as a changing and evolving thing would probably be new to most of our team who, they all joined of a kind uh, post 
2015. Right, because you had a huge hiring spree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So for five years, before, you know, we'd, we'd, had, we'd had a whole life for five years before them. And it's like having, that idea of like having kids who don't understand that their parents are people. Um, <laughs> and I think, it's, I think it's probably that experience for them of being like, oh, wait, that was happening? Like people were sitting on their apartment floors boxing things and like leaving packing tape stuff stuck to their kitchen table and like oversharing about their personal yeah. lives and, yeah, and I mean a totally. bad like a bad day in 2011 when we would be working out of apartments would be like a lentils in the sink day because yeah. we had we would make lunch for whoever was working out of our apartments at that point and they would just leave our apartments a total fucking mess why did we also feel the pressure to make lunch for them god knows because we didn't pay them anything yeah and we were, like it was like the but best why we were we could putting do. that pressure on ourselves to run a business and cook lunch for because, five people because it was like <laughs> all we can provide you with is this like yeah. this no, it meal was really like, nice of us yeah. it is really nice of you guys and i love that you guys now have that sort of gimlet eye of being like now why did <laughs> who did this for these children no I, I think that that's kind of like really great perspective um so you guys do go to a business coach yeah yes we love him and at what point did you start going and why we his name's Ben Michaelis. We started going in 2015 after we sold the business to Bed Bath and Beyond. It was a couple of things. One, having a boss for the first time together was a very new and very challenging experience for us. And learning how to navigate that was something that we wanted guidance um, around. Two, we were hiring a new team of people and wanted to just be better at managing. And that was something that I think for the last few years had been had been a goal of ours and had just like been something that had been weighing on us but we'd never really had the time or headspace to be dedicating the energy that we wanted to be dedicating and then three because we never went to business school or never invested in ourselves professionally in that way this felt like a small way to be able to be like okay this is like our like professional development fund of at least thinking about uh these topics in this setting for an hour a week. And we really think of him as like one third therapist one third management coach and one third marriage counselor. Okay. And that's kind of what, what we get out of it. And how do you even go about finding one of these people? That was challenging. Um, we got a lot of different recommendations. And we just, you know, we asked other founders. We asked, uh, I asked a therapist I was seeing at the time. Um, we asked, I don't know, we, we asked around. And he, the ther- the co- the management coach that we ended up seeing was the only man that was recommended to us. And he was therefore the last person that we went to. <laughs> because we were like, of course we're not going to see a man. And then we interviewed all of these other people and they just didn't feel right. And we're like, I guess we have to check out this guy. And then we really liked him. Also, there can be something to be said for that sort of lingua franca aspect of it being <laughs> like, so do you speak man? That's if so, right. tell us all of your industry secrets. <laughs> I, I mean, mean I there, that, that has, does happen. Yeah. That does yeah. happen for sure. No, I yeah. mean, I think he is a white man. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, he empowers us sometimes to act more like white men than we naturally would. Yeah. Which I love. So are there any sort of like weird narratives that you unearthed that you had to be deprogrammed from that you sort of discovered along the way? I mean, one that came up right away, and I don't know that this necessarily relates to to any of the like straight white male stuff, but he very quickly identified that we treated most things like they were an emergency. And he was like, Here's the thing. Most things are not an emergency. And most things are going to benefit from you taking a beat, taking a breath, talking about that in in a place and a time where everybody is prepared to do it. Rather than sitting across from each other at a couple's desk and then like waving and being like, oh my God, Erica, this email just came in. And like, what do you think? Should I answer this now? And like how? And like, we have to break this down right this second while you're in the middle of something else. Um, And that just totally changed the way we approach meetings with each other and with our employees it changed the way we approach like any sort of funky or uncomfortable situation we're having we will save it for our 
weekly meetings with him. And in general, I think just is also a nice reminder of like, we're running an e-commerce website. Of course, nothing's an emergency. But actually, that gives me such a testimonial to the sort of sustained hypervigilance that you guys had so ingrained for the past <laughs> however many years. Like, So you guys were like, Burnt out. Oh, so yeah. burnt out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100% burnt yeah. out. Yeah. And like you talk about this in the book, but I wanted to ask about it in person. Like, have there been moments where you look to each other and you're like, is this a business or is it Stockholm Syndrome? What are we doing? <laughs> there have been there have been moments where we have both been unhappy mm-hmm. um, with our, either the business or our roles in the business. And I think we've done a good job of vocalizing those things. I don't think at any point it's fe- to date it has felt like, okay, it's time to you know think about this in a bigger way or like contend with this um, as like an action item. But we have expressed those things and I think it's good for each other to, for one another to put a pin in it and to mark the you know mm-hmm. moment and to revisit it and see how we're feeling about it. And I think you know nine years in we now know that these feelings like pass and especially the roles shift a lot and projects come and go. Um, but we're honest about those things with each other. Yeah, sometimes you just need to air out the grievance yeah. and not have anything be done about it in that moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I said to Claire yeah. this morning yeah. on the train, um, we were going to a meeting together, and I was like, I'm just like not feeling anything right now, um, which isn't, you know, which is like by by nature just something that happens. And, you know, she pointed out, she's like, you also have these like three other stressful things happening in your life that are certainly not casting sunshine over your day-to-day work life. Which is actually just a really beautiful aspect of your relationship is that you do have all this extra context. Yeah, mm-hmm. 100%. And to us, that is sort of, I think, like the crux of work wife is that like if we spend so much time at work, right? And work is the center of our lives. And to think that we could work with all of these people and just have our professional selves at the office and our personal lives at home is crazy. That one is informing the other in such a big way. And so to be able to, in whatever capacity you are comfortable give context to your coworkers and say like I have this thing going on at home good or bad or or whatever and it's impacting my work changes the dynamic of those relationships so much because otherwise all your coworker sees is you being distracted in a meeting and thinks that you're not invested in the work and it probably has nothing to do with that it's probably that you know your kid is sick or whatever it is and I think that that really small bit of context can completely shift relationships in the office totally actually would it this is kind of like crystallizing for me is that this is championing a mindfulness. Yeah. You know, and that's such a buzzy word. Yeah, but what yeah. it is, is that it grants perspective mm-hmm. and more of this like aerial view. And this is like, work wife is basically a really holistic and intuitive way to manage and grow a business. That's a nice way of putting it. I mean, I do, I do think so. I think one of the points we make in the book is that like, Traditional office culture was obviously shaped by men who have a much easier time leaving the personal at home, if only because men don't get pregnant, right? As a starting point. As a starting point. You know, you can't leave a pregnant belly at home. Like, you have to as a woman if you are going to get pregnant, for example. Also, men have the women. Yes. That's the thing. They have so much support constantly. No, it's intentional, right? Like, they've structured it that way. And as more and more women, you know, come to leadership positions in the workplace, I think you start to see this sort of um, blending of the personal and the professional that is actually, as you said, 
very intuitive, but also I just think beneficial because it does result in all of those buzzwords that everybody is trying to achieve, the collaboration, the partnership, the transparency, like they the vulnerability. Come, yeah. Yes, they come by way of just having actual real relationships in the workplace. No, it's a very humane way to work with each other. And I think that th- that's the thing about this sort of cishet male narrative is that you can build these like really flat stock character types based on like the fact that a lot of these men are really uninvolved by all the many, many things that support them. A hundred percent. And it's just not a luxury that women have. I mean, I know that like if I'm in a business setting and I'm dealing with a team, I'm immediately looking for the woman who does the things. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, and even the idea of the advice, you know, oh, never work with a friend is born out of this same culture of people who are unwilling to connect with each other on an emotional level, who are unwilling to be vulnerable with one another or transparent with one another or give anyone access to their psyche. And so why are we following the advice of people who are not like us? Yep. No, it's true. And also it's a really good and pressing and urgent answer to just how like systemic patriarchy is really broken and yeah. like how toxic masculinity ultimately serves no one. Yep. No like one. it, it, I mean, not to say it sucks nearly as much as it does for women, but e- it even sucks for guys. So it's just <laughs> yes, kind of yeah, like, because there are so many men who are willing to have these relationships and who are willing to share and be vulnerable and have these human interactions with well, people they, at the they office. They have an urgent need to share yes, about these things yes, and that yes. they just don't have an avenue or the language or the exactly. modality or the mechanism. Exactly. And actually to your point, I find it so again, interesting where I was just like, how, why does this book not exist before? And I'm really grateful that it does is that like, you guys talk really candidly about motherhood mm-hmm. and the fact that like, congratulations, you. <laughs> you know, one of you had a son, yes, a son, <laughs> a son sired an heir <laughs> and like, you don't want kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm on the, I don't want kids boat. Yeah. And the thing is, I'm just like, I, I was actually racking my mind. I didn't do like a, a Google query on it or anything. I was just like, have I ever read a candid conversation where the co-founders had this dynamic? Because it can't be that rare. And yet, why is it that I feel as though right, I'm reading right. about it for the first fucking time? Yeah, right? no, I don't know that I have. And no. I certainly did look. But it was such um, a thing to contend <laughs> with for us, right? Like th- we knew that this was going to be such a dramatic shift in our dynamic that I would I would have a kid all of a sudden I would have this other thing and Erica wouldn't and it required so much conversation and and um, workshopping and therapizing and I think part of the reason we dedicated so much space in the book to it is because we were sort of floored by having the conversations with other work wives about how they handled it we were inspired by these sort of practices and customs and mechanisms that they had come up with to handle it. And and I think it validated for us that this is a really big deal. And yeah, like we are not married and Erica's not my co-parent, but I have to sort of treat it with almost as much care and gravity that as I would with my husband to know that like this this is going to impact our relationship and let's discuss what we're going to do about it. Right, because I feel like the the narrative for so long is like this really odd duality of like you can have it all mm-hmm. or you can't have it all. And these were like the two hot takes that we were yeah, left right. with. And yeah. meanwhile, you guys were like, okay, so this is what these like emails that k- kept one partner apprised while they were on maternity leave was really helpful. So they mm-hmm. didn't feel like they couldn't return back to work. Yes. Like, yeah. you know, even just some simple things like pumping stations and like yes. just things yeah, that you yeah, guys yeah. talk about really, really 
publicly can make such a difference. It makes for such people. a difference because that's the thing. It's like this whole thing of like, you know, like there, you do have this narrative of like journalists being like, how do you juggle motherhood and blah, blah, blah. And having the person being like, hey, like, do you talk to any man in the same way? And that's, yeah. that having its own problems, sure. But if you follow that ellipses, you're like, but how do you do it? Right. Yeah. That is yeah, yeah, your yeah, yeah, reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, and I mean, so, so with the example that you cited around uh, the Food 52 founders where Meryl Stubbs had, was on maternity leave and her uh, business partner, Amanda Hesser, was sending her weekly email updates, that really inspired us when Claire was out uh, for her maternity leave. And so we basically decided that I would go to her house on Tuesday and Thursdays from 4 to 7. I would bring an abbreviated agenda of things that I wanted her thoughts on. We had decided beforehand what she wanted to stay as involved with as she could while she was out and what she didn't want to be involved with. And so we would have conversations around what was pressing, and we wouldn't talk about the rest. And we would catch up on how she was feeling, how I was feeling, and hang out with the baby. And the baby was there, and that was really helpful, too, for her to have that lens a couple times a week into, like, what my life was like. Like, if, you know, and what my life was like when the baby was being really annoying yeah. yeah and what my life was like when the baby was being perfect and that just helped our partnership so much too with me going back to work because it meant she had a realistic expectation of what what was happening and what I, I was capable of and I think for me it was really core because I it was hard to be by myself after being working across a couple's desk with Claire for nine years you know this was an absence that I very much felt in my day-to-day life and so being able to see her and being able to see how she's adapting in this like twice a week way was really meaningful. And, you know, we have a really specific relationship. Like, most people cannot do this. Most people cannot spend a few hours, a few days a week at someone, at a coworker's house. But it's something that we have talked about is the opportunity for what we've kind of dubbed like a motherhood ally. And that is sort of how I think of my role in this, of being someone who can say, I'm going to help make this easier for you as someone who doesn't want kids or who isn't having kids right now so that when you come back to work, you don't feel like, what the fuck just happened? And like, I have 12 weeks or eight weeks or whatever to catch up with. Because systemically, this country is barbaric. Insane. It's insane. But there's no reason why you as just a person working in an office, when you know someone has a sick parent or you know that someone is going to have a baby, why you can't raise your hand and say, hey, if you want... I'd be willing to send you an email every Friday. Because this is the thing. It's not just about babies. It is. It's about sick parents. It's about partners. It's about families. It's about the stuff that goes on in this person's life. People have lives. And and that happen outside of work and that sometimes get in the way of being productive at work or doing the work that they want to be doing. And this is so important. Like, I really think that there is a way to manage, like, ambition and anxiety. I think Mm -hmm. that conversation is really important. I think the fact that you talk in this book about, like, running the gamut from, like, can you send a weekly email? Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you go further and like actually meet at a partner's house? Maybe. Yeah. But the the thing is, it's like they're talked about in terms of real things you can do versus this sort of like magical Support vagueness. People. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. Be a feminist. It's yeah. just like, no, no, no. But homie, like what, what actual works, action what matters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that was what was so incredible is like they told, so Amanda and Meryl told us that they had this email routine and I just started tearing up and it was like, why am I tearing up about an, the fact that Logistics. she sent her a one like it's once a week email? Yeah. But it it got right to the heart of what I was feeling, which was, I know I want to have a baby and so many things about it are scary, but the most immediate thing is the idea of being out of work for a couple of months. And that and being was, out of the loop. Yeah, and yeah. being out of the loop. And when I come back, will I just have any authority? Will I have any context? Will I know what's going on? And 
granted, that's a very short-sighted thing in the grand scheme of, of having kids, but th- it was but this that's incredibly, an important thing. it's very important. And it was this incredibly simple thing that they, that Amanda and Meryl came up with that solved for a big part of that. And I was like, why isn't that a thing? And the reason is because as you said, our country is barbaric and we haven't even gotten to paid leave yet. So it's like, we can't even start talking about reintegration after paid leave. But this leave. is something people can do on their own. Yeah. You know, this is something you don't need there to be a corporate policy around this. You just need to be a friend. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the thing. It's like, that's another thing that we don't talk about, that women are punished yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. for having children. Exactly. Like, the statistics actually in your book about how for each additional child, you lose like a percent <laughs> of your earning potential. And the fact that like men, men get a bump because yeah. they're yeah, now because they're more seen as really responsible. Yeah. yeah, you can handle all these things. They're ready to become a politician. Well, and, well, <laughs> yeah, and totally. you know, now they have a whole family to support. Oh, right. So they just so we, need more. They need so more money. So we have to really yeah. just like take the village to raise a man, guys. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> a large adult baby. Um, so we are wrapping up. But um, I actually just wanted to end kind of on an emo note. What is like, because I was reading this book and I was thinking about the process of writing it. Was there a nostalgic aspect of it where you're like, oh, my God, like this really is like the time capsule of like our nine years together? It was that for sure. And it was really fun to, at some point I made a post-it note of all of the anecdotes that I wanted to make sure made it into the book or that we had to at least like try to get into the book. And that was really fun of being like, we can't forget about all those moments where we turned to each other and we were like, well, that'll be the season finale when in the TV show of our lives. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that the real, the real thing it did for us was more than nostalgia. It was, it was this incredibly validating thing where obviously we felt strongly about our partnership we were writing a book about it but to interview all these other women and to just like go deep breaking down what it meant to us was so helpful in realizing like yes this is a central relationship in my life and I it is not embarrassing to treat it that way because validated it in a way that I think we didn't realize we even needed validation right because that's so easy to be like oh there what is this like some sort of like rom-com yeah yeah yeah. just two gals palling around yeah Yeah, Yeah, not to like beat the pregnancy thing to to death, but I was part of the, I had so much indecision around having kids for many reasons, but a really big reason was that Erica wasn't going to have them. And that was like a weird thing to come to terms with. And I was embarrassed by it. I was like, why would I not have a kid just because Erica doesn't want one? Like, that's weird. I love that you're talking about it because these are the things that you just sort of draw in your head and it becomes this like calcified little rule. And you're like, whoa, why, why am I treating it like that? Yeah. Um, are you starting a conference for female-driven partnerships? Because actually, when I when I read this, I was just like, is this a conference? Are they starting a Tinder for like work wives? What's no, happening here? we are not. Um, we've thought about, we've like yeah. had the considered conversations and been like, we actually don't want to do that. Um, we actively don't want to do that. But we what, what we do want, Mary, is scripted television. Yeah. Perfect. If anybody wants to turn this <laughs> into is, a is great series. Is this actually series. like a yeah. thing that you want in your future? Because yeah. I was yes. like, oh. yeah. Yeah. 100%. We want scripted television because we want the professional and personal relationships of women represented broadly and for people to see that this is possible and to see how women interact in these business settings where they Yo. are real with each yeah. other. Yes. And also, for that to be something like little girls on the playground aspire to. But also I, I would love it if it was like a really, really sort of like serious show and or even like a 22 minute sitcom because it would be so easy to make all the men virtually a little bit invisible because yeah. when you actually yeah. think about the work that's getting done so yeah. often it is yeah. just like the network of assistants like yeah. you know like mm-hmm. the, the one woman on the team that you know like you're going to get a follow up action item on yep yeah no that's really funny 
I love the idea of that. We're and also multi-generational. It'd be yeah. like, yes, you know, Absolutely. like so many like hordes of women being like, oh yeah, they have, they are currently trying to like expire us, but here's our action plan and here's our thing. And it feels like the sort of like precursors to the show exist in the bold type and in younger and like they're like they're Grace and Frankie. Yeah, yeah. And these shows like exist and the work wife is the TV show is the next chapter of that whole the sort of class of shows. No, I love that. It's almost like a secret society. I just yeah. like envision it as like covens the worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just like everywhere. Um, what is your favorite thing about the other? Um, Erica is just so incredibly reliable. Makes her sound boring, but <laughs> she anything she says she will do, she will do. Um, and it, it, you just never have to question it. It is like remarkable and uh, intimidating. Um, Clara is passionate, it, like just the most passionate and enthusiastic and in- excitable in all of the best of ways, which means she'll become obsessed with something and be obsessed with it for months. And, and then tell you all about their tell Instagram you all history. about it and then kind of forget <laughs> about it. Yeah. I love that. Um, and finally, what do you guys do for self-care? What's like a little mm. thing that you do that's like at the altar of your own self-care? For me, cooking at home is the thing. And I feel like it's one of those things where after a long day, I know that I can fully distract myself with the process of putting something together because I am very structured and process oriented and like get a lot out of like, okay, what time does the pot of water have to go on for this to happen, for Are this to all Virgo? come together? No, uh, Aquarius. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah, and I also just like that sense of accomplishment. If even if like it feels like nothing else really got done that day, this thing did. What's your like go-to thing where you're like, I need this for morale, I'm making it? Ugh. God, there are so many. Um, I made this uh, tuna quinoa salad last night that I make a lot um, that is like the easiest 10-minute thing. It's like quinoa, arugula, golden raisins, um, capers, nice tuna, like nice canned tuna. Yeah, yeah, yeah like the Tonino stuff. Yeah, yeah the yeah. Italian the joint. The yeah, yeah, yeah. not the jar. Yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah. olive oil. Exactly. And, yeah. um, and a lemon vinaigrette, and it's just delicious and easy. And, That's yeah. such a Hollywood salad. Yeah, it <laughs> is. You know what I mean? It's like a Very square Hollywood. bowl and like $32. <laughs> and what about you? Um, for me, it's running, um, which is still shocking to myself that existed prior to 10 years ago because I was just not at all an athletic person until I decided that I wanted to get off of antidepressants that I'd been on for a really long time. And I got this idea in my head that I would start running as a way to sort of help me cycle off. And so I started out running like five minutes a day and then 10 minutes a day. And now 10 years later, this is something I just do every single day to manage my anxiety and depression. And it's really just like an empowering thing and to be able to feel like I know that my day will be ever so slightly better or maybe way better because I spent 30 minutes doing this thing. Yeah, moving muscle, change of mood. That's like so Mm -hmm, real. mm -hmm. Um, Thank you guys so much. This book is wonderful. And it's out and you guys are touring and I don't envy all. Yeah, no, (laughs) feel you. Super exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was wonderful, Mary. I'm in love with my life. 